This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Mom and Dad modeled for me as recipients of the word um, that people do come anticipating to hear from God. And it is an honor and a privilege to be a, a conduit that allows hungry people to have that hunger met in the preaching moment. So that's that's one thing that they modeled for me, what it, what it means to be a listener as a preacher and as somebody who listens to preaching. This is Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher from preachingtoday.com at Christianity Today. In this episode, I'm with a very special guest, a guy named Steve Norman, who's just completed a book that's coming out right now. It's called The Preacher as Sermon with a great subtitle, How Who You Are Shapes What They Hear. And I love this concept and I've read this book and I love it. So I'm excited to have Steve talk to us today. Steve is an author, a pastor, a preacher, and has been a contributor to preachingtoday.com. Steve, it's so good to have you with us on this podcast. Matt, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We, we've been really excited about this book at Preaching Today. So tell me a little bit about the title and the subtitle. What Unpack a little bit for this, what this means. Yeah, the whole idea that the preacher is an integral part of the preaching process and the preaching moment. And I think that there are some schools of thought that say, well, you know, it's the preacher's job to be invisible. It's a preacher's job to stand outside of the preaching moment. But the truth is God didn't design it that way. When we read the scriptures, we even read in Second uh, Peter chapter one that that prophets are spoke from God, not from human origin, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So for me, the preaching moment happens where four worlds converge: the paper, which is the text, the preacher, which is the voice through which that text is declared, the power of God, which is which is the author, and then the people who are the recipients. So where those elements collide. There's something mystical that happens, and that's the preaching moment. And I think that we've spent a lot of time talking about the text, a lot of time talking about contextualization, a lot of time talking about theology. And I think that one one variable that often gets overlooked is where does the preacher fit into that equation? And where does what is happening in the preacher's mind and heart and spirit and backstory influence either positively, negatively, or not at all what happens in preaching? I love that, Steve. I love the four P's, by the way, and uh, that, that is that's actually that's really good. I really like that. I've never I've never heard that before. But you're so right about that. I mean, God could have designed it. He could have written it in the skies, you know, or he could have. Yeah. Um, but it, he works through flawed and imperfect, and as the Apostle Paul said, weak human instruments like us. Right. So I, I was really moved by the fact that I, I opened the book up the first time I read it, and I noticed that you dedicated the book to your mom, dad and mom. I thought that was really sweet. I'm sure dad and mom taught you a lot of things, you know, like how to ride a bike and how to tie your shoes and all that kind of stuff. But what did, what did they especially teach you that had an impact on your preaching, do you think? It kind of feeds into your preaching even today. I think my parents' faith and their spiritual curiosity is something that shaped me deeply. I remember going to church every week in my middle school years, watching my mom and dad pull out Bibles and notebooks. They carried Bibles and notebooks with them every time we went to worship. Mm. And when it was time for the message, they wrote at the top of that page who was preaching, the date, the passage, and then whatever it was that they felt like God was speaking to them through that particular message. So mom and dad modeled for me as recipients of the word. Um, that people do come anticipating to hear from God. 
And it is an honor and a privilege to be a, a conduit that allows hungry people to have that hunger met in the preaching moment. So that's, that's one thing that they modeled for me, what it means to be a listener as a preacher and as somebody who listens to preaching. And then I think they also modeled for me a great love for scripture and a deep mm. passion for prayer. Matt, when I started the book, my father was living and, and he passed between mm. when the book got started and when the book was completed. But the last handwritten note that I got from my father includes these words, I'm praying, I'm praying for you and your book. That's been a great gift. And so I think that kind of dad's legacy hangs over my spiritual journey, but also this writing process. And my hope is that Rennie Norman's encouragement would, would indirectly come to many of the people who have opportunity to pick the book up. That's a great story. That makes me uh, choke up a little bit. My dad died about a, 15 months ago, you know, so just to get that, that note from your dad, that note of encouragement, that's really beautiful, really cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so Steve, I think it's in the introduction you write. Uh, here's what you wrote. I'll quote, preachers don't need more tricks and tips. We need help cultivating a life that generates great sermons. The preacher's formation shapes the preacher's preaching. How I live influences how I preach and how I don't. Who I am shapes what I will say and what I won't. Again, that's the thesis of the book, which you mentioned before, but just unpack that quote a little bit more for us. Yeah, again, not, not to disparage anybody who's gone before us, because those of us who, who kind of grew up doing preaching training in the 80s and 90s are deeply indebted to the generation that came before us. But I think some of us kind of maybe stumbled into a school of thought that maybe wasn't even officially articulated that said, good preaching equals hours spent in study. Hmm. And of course, you have to do the work. You have to do the theology. You have to do the research. You have to immerse yourself in the text. And all of that is true. But I'm finding that you could spend 20, 30, 40 hours in the study. And then who you are in the hours that aren't spent in the study have a lot to say with who the who you are when you proclaim those words. And, and I believe that we're, we're integrated people. Preaching isn't merely an intellectual act. It's an emotional act. And Jesus says that we speak out of the overflow of our hearts. So I could, I could master the exegesis. But if I'm irritated with my spouse or if I'm yelling at my 14-year-old daughter every single day when I drop her off at school, that has a, an influencing, a shaping effect on my soul that I carry with me into the pulpit, whether I want to or not. So I, I think we've all seen that there are some people who are not maybe intellectual giants. Maybe people don't have any formal training, but when they speak, they speak with power and mm. passion and credibility and spiritual authority. And on the flip side, we've all had moments where we may have been the most theologically gifted person in the room, or were very adept at being public communicators, but we knew that there was something cracked in our own soul. And either we tried to push that down and ignore it, or we had to figure out a way to work around it rather than to lean into it and address it. And I think that sometimes maybe as preachers, five minutes of obedience is worth 20 hours in the study. Oh, boom. Tweet that. That's good. Steve, I'd like you to get really personal and just sort of how you learned this lesson, because I totally agree with what you're saying, but I, it took me a while to come to the truth of what you're saying. Um, and people in seminary probably tried to teach me this. I, I can't say I didn't learn it in seminary, but I, I, maybe I wasn't paying attention, but I just think it's a lot of failure, a lot of suffering, a lot of seeing my own sin, my own fallenness and crackness. But so how, how did you come to just be so passionate about this, the theme of this book? Not only was there kind of discouragement in my own soul, but I could I could see discouragement in the lives of other pastors and preachers as well to be able to say, I do this day in, day out, week in, week out. I'm banging the same nail for, for weeks on end. 
I don't know if I'm changing. I don't know if the people are changing. I know that God mm. isn't changing, but is, yeah. is, is, any, is anything coming of this? And I think that sometimes in the moments where I was just not maybe fully anchored in my identity in Christ, where I was, I was thinking, well, if I'm a little bit more witty, or if I'm a little bit more funny, or if I have better mm. illustrations, then maybe, then maybe the preaching will, will get better. You know, a few years ago, there was a rash of plagiarism allegations. And, and yes. I think that at the core, a lot of preachers, they're not trying to cut corners. But, but I think at our core, people really want, they want to be great. And they think that if that greatness doesn't lie within them, they have to steal it from somebody else. And, and again, that's a twisted view of where the preacher fits in that equation. Like, I can't just parrot other people's experience, even if I'm able to read their sermon note for note and word for word and have it come with the same level of grit or believability. Like I have to walk that text. I have to live that truth. I have to, I have to embody that spiritual reality in order for me to speak to it in a manner that is compelling. And, and I don't think that we only get to preach about the issues that we've tackled. I, I think that can often come across as, as patronizing and insincere. We get to preach the messages that we are hearing from the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. And, and one of the chapters in the book talks about what does it look like to be a fellow traveler with your congregation? Hmm. What does it mean to be that? Uh, what was the line that they used uh, in seminary? They talked about, you got to be a guide on the side, not a sage on the stage. And hmm. I think that sometimes if we think, well, as the preacher, I, I'm the one with the microphone and I'm the one with the credentials or I'm the one holding the Bible in the spotlight. So I have to be smarter than everybody in the room. It's not true. I do have to steward the call that the Lord has given me in that text for that people in that moment. It's an honor and it's a privilege. It's a high stakes responsibility, but I think that we can carry that treasure with joy rather than drag it like an anvil with angst uh, up before congregation. Uh, That's really good. So throughout the book, you have 10 chapters aside from the introduction and you have a number of different images for what the role of the preacher, you have the preacher as son or daughter, the preacher as intercessor, coach, artist, joy generator, fellow sufferer, some great images, but you start with the preacher as defined by scripture. And this yeah. is what I, this is what I found really intriguing. So you actually started with right out of the gate, you start with, and here's a quote. You said the preacher is called to preach against places that exhibit rebellion against God's character and purposes. And then you move right into preaching against and preaching uh, repentance those are not popular topics. That's not where a lot of preaching seminars start. So why did you start with those two words, against and repentance? Well, I, I start with them because they're in the text. And part of preaching is, is learning how to wrestle with texts that you wouldn't choose, but ones that either the lectionary or the circumstances have put before you. In my own experience, you know, I grew up, was born in the, in the mid-70s and was exposed to a lot of guilt, fear, and shame-based preaching over the years. And I think that our generation of preachers, when we came of age, we tried to course correct. It said, mm. people need to know that God loves them. People need to know that God is for them. People need to know that God created them and is, is, is wooing them into a life-giving relationship with himself. And I still believe all of those things to be true. But recently I had a privilege of preaching a passage about uh, Revelation, the letters to the seven churches. And what I, what I love about how John preaches to the seven churches, he goes, God loves you. He sees your pain. He sees your struggle. He honors your faithfulness. And then in the very next phrase, he goes, and yet you've forsaken your first love or you're lukewarm or you've fallen asleep. Fallen asleep. And John, echoing Jesus, you know, speaking on behalf of Jesus, says it's possible for two things to be true at the same time. It's possible for you to be loved by God and for you still to be spiritually asleep. 
And I think that sometimes we, we, we kind of swing the pendulum wide in one direction and say like, hey, if we call people to repentance, we might spook them or we might make them nervous. Or we might make them unsettled. And I, I think that it's God's love and an understanding of God's love that allows us to preach repentance gently and boldly. Yeah. You know, Romans says is it's, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So if the general framework is God wants what is best for you, why would you settle for for anything other than that or less than that. That's how repentance gets framed. And those of us who only ever heard repentance or preaching against sound like some wild-eyed, manic, finger-waving prophet just screaming to people that they were going to turn or burn. We're like, there's no context to that. There's no relationship to that. There's no gentleness in that. And many of us just rejected that out of turn. But preaching repentance is part and parcel with preaching the gospel. And learning how to preach repentance well is an art or a skill that, that hasn't been modeled well for a lot of us. And it's my hope that we could we could re-engage that. Yeah, that's great. You know, in the liturgical church traditions, so Advent always starts with John the Baptist. Two Sundays with John the Baptist on repentance. And sure. of course, Ash Wednesday, start the great Lenten season with, you know, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. Repent and believe the gospel. So that's a great emphasis. And you talk about that really well. So you have a chapter in there on the preacher as artist. Okay. Yep. So uh, what does that mean? Yeah. Unpack that for us. We see like in the stories of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, some very creative, very creative preaching. You know, yes. Jeremiah was just, you know, whether it's talking about a potter or burying a linen belt in a cave, like we have these really powerful, beautiful images that speak to people and kind of shock them out of life, life as usual or scripture intake as ordinary. And I think that we have this great privilege to paint the gospel picture with brushstrokes that, that have meaning to people who are hearing it. So I think that, that creativity and our own creativity and everybody's got a different, got a different bent towards it should come alive and come fully alive in the text. And I think that's where we can say like, all right, how do I allow my unique backstory, my skills and passions to come through when I'm crafting an illustration or putting together an introduction mm-hmm. or calling people to, to reframe maybe a concept that has grown stale to them spiritually but they really need it. They need to get shocked into an awareness of grace or mercy or justice. I think creativity allows us to do that. And, and Jesus was a master of object lessons. He he could he was he was able to pull images that were familiar to people, but then reframe them and infuse them with a high degree of spiritual truth, so that they never looked at wheat harvests or coins or fishing nets the same way again. Mm. Because Jesus had had kind of claimed them with the imagery and spiritual truth that that allowed them to go through life with a different set of spiritual lenses, as it were. This leads me to a question, something I've been wrestling with lately, and that is um, we talk about finding your voice as a preacher, but then also the need to imitate and learn from other preachers, not imitate like just purely sort of in a, just a rote kind of way, but as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and yet finding our own voice. And I think both are true. So how do you... How do you balance those two? How would you say a preacher should balance those two? That's a great question, Matt. And I think that one of the things, one of the lessons I learned early came from, from Ken Davis, great, great preacher and comedian and author in his own right. And he said, when you understand that you're loved by God, you can live your life with nothing to prove, nothing to hide and nothing to lose. And mm-hmm. I think that finding my own voice, if I'm not careful, that whole conversation can be born out of insecurity. How do I sound different than somebody else? How do I prove myself? How do I come across with something unique? That chapter that talks about making sure that I view myself as a preacher, as a son or a daughter of Christ, when my identity is anchored in my sonship or my daughtership, all that stuff about voice, that develops organically. 
And I think that if I say, I have a privilege of declaring God's truth to God's people in this moment as myself without any need to be anything other than who God has gifted me to be, I think, I think voice is a natural overflow of that. I, I do think that exposing ourselves to different types of preachers geographically, culturally, and historically broadens the expansion of our voice. I heard somebody say once, if, if you listen to one preacher, you sound like a clone. If you listen to two preachers, you can come across as a little bit kind of divided. But they said, if you listen to three or more preachers, you, you will emerge with your own voice because you're able to synthesize their styles and their thoughts and then bring out the best of who you are in the midst of that. So part of that is just having the humility and desire to learn from as many different voices as we can. That's great. I think we're totally on the same page with that. You have another chapter on the preacher as joy generator. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what do you mean by that image? <laughs> so one of, the, one of the things we talk about in the book is that a lot of times when you have when you see historic images of preachers and you know, you're in suburban Chicago, when you go to the Billy Graham museum, you see all these different images of, of Billy Sunday and, and all yeah. these other kind of historic Charles Spurgeon, all these other great historic voices. And I, I, maybe I'm just looking in the wrong place, but whenever I see photographs or wood carvings, I always see them with like furrowed brows and you can see the sweat flying off of their heads and spit coming out of their mouths. And there's a lot of intensity. Very rarely do I see preachers holding up a copy of the open scriptures, smiling or laughing. I'm not huh. saying that they didn't, but that's just never how we capture preaching. We, there's a sense that it should come with gravity. And yes, it should. Uh, the stakes are high. But when it comes with pressure, we don't get a chance to declare it with freedom and joy. And my hope is that for people who have become exhausted in preaching, is that resources like this one would allow them to rediscover their joy. And that when people come up to them in the lobby after a service or, or in the narthex or at the front door as they're exiting. And they say, I really enjoyed the sermon this morning. They wouldn't have to gear up with false humility, but they could say, thank you. I had so much fun. That's great. Yeah. Because I think that our, our world is long on a, on a lot of things, but what it's often short on, especially in the, our current, the, the current climate that we're experiencing culturally, the stress that a lot of people are recovering from in COVID or continuing to experience whether it's psychologically, physically, or financially, we face a joy deficit almost every day we get out of bed. It is a broken world with some really challenging themes that seem unrelenting. And Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. And when Jesus speaks, Jesus always speaks from a place of joy. And I believe that if we only ever speak from a place of heaviness or pressure, we don't communicate the multifaceted beauty of, of the gospel that we find in Scripture. That's really good, Steve. I think it was was it Tolkien? I think that talked about the, uh, the the word he used was eucatastrophe or something like that. Whereas this, he called it the turn to joy in the story. And the gospel is there's a turn to joy, no matter how bad things get. There's this always this turn to joy, and I just think that should be there in every sermon. You know? Yeah. Yep. At least you know hints of it. <clears throat> Right. And that's why this whole idea of the preacher as sermon, if we're not experiencing joy, if we're not claiming and cultivating and practicing joy in our own lives and defining the rhythms and spiritual practices and community that give birth to joy, we won't have any joy to give away. And so that joy bleeds through in our sermons. And if we're constantly experiencing a joy deficit, it's really important to hunt down a counselor or a spiritual director or a mentor to be able to say something in my interior world is leaking joy. I want to, I want to fix it. Not just so that my preaching can get better. Right. I want to fix it so that, so that I, I can experience the fullness of the spirit that I, that I want to. Yeah. 
Well, it leads to one one more image, and we could explore all of these. But people, you got to buy the book, people. Okay, I'm not going to give you all of the all of the material. You also have a chapter on the preacher as fellow sufferer. I was really drawn to that, and let me read a quote from the book. You write, "I'm convinced that if we don't regularly admit the prevalence of suffering in our society, our preaching feels." tone deaf to anyone paying attention to the world. That's a great line. I really like that. So what is the preacher's role in preaching into suffering? I think it it starts with acknowledging suffering. I think that when Jesus preached, he was able to identify public events that were immediately compelling to his audience. We talked about you know, the, the Gentiles mixing the blood with Galileans and the sacrifices. When you talk about the tower that fell that killed people, Jesus, Jesus knows that they are living in this broken world and he, he's naming the brokenness that they see. And he's joining them in their lament and their grieving over their personal losses and their societal breakdown. And I think that if we're not careful, we will end up with kind of this Pollyanna-ish pie in the sky, completely detached from the dirt and the grime and the muck of people's daily lives. Somebody once said that people decide if they're going to listen to a communicator inside of the first two or three minutes of hearing them talk. And if in our first 180 seconds, we we convey anything other than empathy mm. or identity with the pain that's in the world, we, w- we will have forfeited our hearing. And I think that the, the racial tragedies and some of the political twists and turns, if something that is breaking people's hearts weighs heavy on their mind, on a Saturday night, and we don't address that on a Sunday morning, we will create an unnecessary disconnect between what we're trying to communicate and where our people live. And so I, I, don't, I don't think we have to obsess about the pain, but we have to name it. In fact, when I was yes. uh, leading a local church in suburban Detroit, one of the lines that we as a staff would say to ourselves during the ministry week is we would say, never underestimate the pain in the room. Hmm. The odds that somebody sitting in the auditorium or in these days with the advent of technology, somebody hearing your stream live or somebody downloading your stream later, the odds that somebody there has experienced heartbreak in their family, whether it was a loss of a loved one or a a deep personal conflict with a child or an adult parent or an illness or a financial setback or a struggle with addiction or or somebody that you care about is incarcerated. The odds that that's true for somebody in the room is always 100%. Wow. Yeah. So if we underestimate the pain in the room, we don't get a chance to be the, this healing balm that comes with declaring the, the peace and the kindness and the goodness of God, even in the midst of our darkest moments. And so I think that identifying without, without being self-absorbed and self-indulgent, identifying where that pain is in our own lives is really important. So, man, I talked about losing my dad and, and he ended up passing the week after Father's Day of 2019. And I knew, I knew that he was struggling. I knew that he was in his last, in his last days when I got up to preach a father's day message Wow! and I was sitting backstage just weeping. And I called my wife and I go, I don't, I don't think I can do it. And she was gracious and Kelly was gracious enough to to pray with me. And, And when I got up, I was able to give a message to fathers. And at the end, I was able to honor my father and acknowledge part of the reason it is a hard day for me is because these might be my last moments with my dad. And I, in fact, I left immediately from that service to drive, you know, two hours and 15 minutes to suburban Chicago to, to be with him with the rest of my family. And I, I, we don't, we don't throw out like emotional tidbits to, to give the congregation a, a, a weird kind of voyeuristic experience. I, we've all been a part of moments where communicators, whether they're politicians or preachers or entertainers have, 
have been self-revelatory as a means to manipulate people towards a particular end. I'm not talking about that at all. I am saying that preachers need to be able to say, I'm in this with you. I'm also trudging through the the muck of life. Mm-hmm. And my hope is in Christ. And when it's appropriate to be able to say, I, I need you to walk with me, even as I walk with you, because again, the odds are that there are going to be some days where Matt Matt's on a high and Steve's on a low. And I, and when we worship together, I'm going to, I'm going to need you to hold me up because in a quarter or six months or two years, the tables will turn and then it'll be my opportunity to carry you. That's, that's what the body looks like. And I think that sometimes if we're not careful, we'll forget that the pastor is a member of the congregation. And if the pastor can't help for help from the congregation, then the pastor cannot model the fact that you know, Paul says the body needs each other. Some parts of the body, when they're weak, they need other parts of the body to be strong. And I think we don't just preach that. I think we need to live that. That's, that's great. So joy generator and fellow sufferer can go together in the Absolutely. same preacher. So Steve, I want to give you one last word, you know, so here's your chance to, to talk from pastor to pastor, preacher to preacher. You've, you've written this book. You've obviously done a lot of thinking about preaching. You've read a lot on preaching. You've read widely. Uh, you got the sources you quote in this book is really fascinating and really broad. So we're kind of entering into this post-COVID world and crazy stuff going on in the United States and around the world. What word of encouragement or challenge would you want to leave with your fellow preachers? I would say, don't forget that God never stops speaking. Hmm. Like the very first part of the book, it says, in the beginning, God said, and God has never stopped saying. And God is either going to speak to you through his revealed word, or God's going to speak to you through your circumstances, or God is going to speak to you through the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. But God is, God is speaking to you. And if we have ears to hear what he's saying, we'll, we'll receive a gift that we need to hear, for, even if it's just for us and for our families and for our children. I think that there's so much confidence and so much joy and so much hope that comes with saying, I don't have to wrestle answers out of nowhere. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have to pull truth just out of the ether. I can know that God is speaking. And if I know what God has said, I have the opportunity to declare it. And if I'm not yet clear about what God is saying in this specific moment to my life or my marriage or my parenting or my neighboring or my leading, then God is calling me to a point of quiet where I can receive. But if God is speaking, we have this unique privilege to hear from him. I think it was Luther who said, bless us, Lord, yea, even curse us, but please be not silent. If God is speaking, God is speaking truth. And when he speaks truth, there is life in that truth. And where there's life, there's hope. And if there's hope, I can put one foot in front of the other. Just one more step as is revealed to me. And I don't have to be overwhelmed. And I don't have to give up. That's awesome, Steve. So again, people, the the title of the book is The Preacher as Sermon, How Who You Are Shapes What They Hear. It's a really concise book and really well written. So I really encourage you to, to pick that up and read it. We have a website for it. It's called PreacherAsSermon.com. Not with the word the in it, but just PreacherAsSermon.com. And you can check out the book, but it's for sale. It'll be for sale by the time this podcast is out everywhere you buy your books. And uh, Steve, thanks so much for being with us. And thanks for writing this book. Matt, thanks so much for having me. And thanks for making the book possible. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for being with us. This is Matt Woodley with PreachingToday.com on Monday Morning Preacher.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.